Welcome to the Synapse Nips podcast, where we explore the power of health and healing. On this podcast, we will be talking with health experts, professionals, and leaders about hot topics in the world of health. Whether it's tools to help you flourish, successful stories to inspire, or tips to optimize your health, Synapse Nips is here to help you take the first steps towards living your best life. Welcome to Synapse Snips. I'm Dr. Troy with uh, Dr. Josh and Marquis, and we're here today to talk about stress and more uh, stress's ability uh, or impact actually on our ability to heal. So this is uh, again a timely topic. Just uh, um, actually, we could pretty much talk about this at any time because the majority of people that come in have some level of stress. And we're going to define stress a little differently and talk about it more from uh, how it affects our body, but also hopefully give some practical guidance during times of stress. So maybe let's just define stress as far as uh, what we're talking about, uh, not just talking about mental stress, but uh, different types of stress. So when it comes to stress, uh, why don't you share a little bit uh, about your thoughts on um, the different types of stress that we encounter in life, and, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I, I look at stress as a normal thing. A stress, a stress reaction is, is meant to happen under certain circumstances. And so some stress can be good, right? It's, yeah, it's a motivating it. thing, yeah. right? We need to be able to have that stress response. And that stress response is really the brain's perception of, both from a mental perspective, the brain's perception of something negative, which could vary by person. Something that'll stress you out won't stress me out, or mm-hmm. vice versa. And then the body can be stressed too without mental, um, you know, lead-in. Yeah. And so that could be like a physical from, stress. Yeah. So you know, it could be exercise as a stress, right? And that can be good or bad. Uh, an infection can be a stress. Anything in the body. So stress is really the body's response to you know overexertion or inflammation or something of that nature. But I think the important point is, regardless of the trigger, the downstream consequences can be can be similar. So, for example, uh, you, you talk about mental, chemical, and physical stressors, mm-hmm. and we need a certain amount. So there has to be a low lower threshold that we have to exceed to actually help us get healthy. Like, Marquis, you work out, you're in the gym. When it comes to working out, you have to put a physical stress on your muscles to make gains, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. If you don't do enough... You look like Josh. You look like Josh. (laughs) (laughs) No no offense. (laughs) And so if you you do enough, but can you overdo it too in the gym? Oh, for sure. You physically overwork. So there's a a window, right, that you've got to operate That's why I don't go to the gym. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Josh doesn't have physical stress. Very protective of my... (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, but the same thing is true mentally. And the same thing is true chemically. For example, if you look at the immune system, you have to have a certain amount of stress on your immune system to make your immune system healthy and vibrant and properly reactive. That's why playing in the dirt is a good thing. As we, as we become more germophobic, it actually is causing harm to people's immune system's response. So stress is not a bad thing. Mental stress. We also know that if you don't stimulate your brain, that it can lead to dementia, Alzheimer's, and and cognitive challenges. But if you overstress your brain, then it can also cause problems. So you have to stimulate your brain, have a certain amount of stress uh, to actually have it be uh, uh, 
balanced and, and effectively helpful for you. So everyone always thinks of the mental overload of stress as being stress. But the reality is we need a certain amount of mental, chemical, and physical stress. And uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, from Tony Robbins was um, that successful people become comfortable with the uncomfortableness of life. Now, to me, if you break that in, break that down, it's really talking about learning how to manage stress, what to do about stress. So you don't want to get rid of stress. You want the physical stress of life, you want the mental stress of life, and you want some chemical stress of life, but it's learning uh, how to manage it. So that's really what we're going to unpack today. Yeah, so it's the exercise piece, but just um, applied to different parts. So you can exercise appropriately, and it's good for you, and you can be in stressful situations. If you can handle it, and if you can learn how to handle it, that can be helpful in a you know, good learning situation, good for your body, good for a lot of things. Yeah, and just the general rule of thumb is consistency is key. Uh, again, I'll take a different type of chemical stress. There's a lot of research that shows that a glass of wine is good for you. But if you, uh, nightly, a glass of wine can be good for you. But if you overconsume that, then it can be very detrimental to you. That's a chemical stress. So there, there are some, and there are some people that just shouldn't have wine, but, uh, or alcohol in general. But the studies are showing that there's some benefit there. Consistency in going to the gym is key. It's not just one and done. Marquis got gym muscles. Um, I'm assuming that just didn't happen. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Is there any consistency that's involved with that? Yes, for sure. Yeah. It's the same thing for all the others too. So when it comes to the mental stressors, being consistent with stuff, taking a pill to just numb your reality isn't necessarily the best way to, to handle stress. So we'll talk uh, and dive into that too a little bit uh, as far as different things you can do. Um, when it comes to uh, stress, what are some of the consequences of stress that you see? Oh, well, I, I think stress can be an underlying issue with the majority of people that we see here in the clinic to some degree. Because if you define stress so broadly, then those overdone stress responses really do lead to a lot of problems. And I think the, my favorite example is digestive dysfunction. And I have some individuals where it doesn't, you know, they don't, they don't get fixed by doing a diet, by doing supplements. It's all stress. And if they can reduce their stress and impact, and this is exactly why stress can lead to ulcers in some yes, people, right? I mean, it's the same consequence where stress affects, because of the brain's connection to the digestive system, it affects the digestion so much that you can get a hole in your stomach just by having stress. Yeah, and if your digestive system becomes uh, affected, you've now lost the ability to properly absorb. You're not as efficient at digesting, breaking down foods. You're not as efficient at extracting the nutrients from those foods. So stress uh, management and, and, and looking at your stressors are crucial for proper digestion and then fueling your body moving forward. Yeah, we even see that after head injury. Yeah, Because if you hit your head, which is another form of stress into your brain, you will also have digestive dysfunction. This all goes back to the vagus nerve, yeah. which is very important. The vagus nerve is essentially the opposite of your stress response. It's trying to calm things down, improve heart rate and breathing rate, improve digestion. And that nerve, it becomes dysfunctional in a stress situation. Yeah, we're either in fight or flight or rest and digest or trans transferring from one to the other in, in, in transit. And so you can't be in both at the same time. There's always going to be like a, a, a shifting back and forth. And so if we're too often in a state of fight or flight, 
then we're going to see compromise with our ability to sleep and our ability to digest. Which for me, one of the sneaky little things that gets in there are sleep patterns, sleep imbalance uh, that can actually lead to consequences of stress. So people may have a good stress-free life from a responsibility or even a uh, mental stress part of it, but if they have a sleep disorder, you're going to have the same consequences of stress. It's funny. I just had somebody in this week where she said, "This was I finally got all of the stress out of my life, and then I got sick." You ever yes. hear that? From yeah, people? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the body was trying to keep up so hard, and then once that stressor was gone, it just didn't know how to recover properly. That's right, and because you end up getting to a place of depletion, and then then you've got the consequences. And so we do see um, a lot of ongoing dysfunction that starts to occur with extended, uh, prolonged uh, times of stress. Even the so stress can be both kind of a short term thing and a long have long term consequences too. In the short term, it's the getting your heart rate right, revved up. It's kind of that feeling of almost anxiety, but you're getting your body ready to do something mm-hmm. that can be useful in some situations. But then, from a long term perspective, you get hormones that are released and can change. You know, cortisol and these stress hormones that can significantly affect immune system and brain function over the long term. Yeah, and we do we do know that stress. Uh, as it has those consequences with the hormones, has a net impact both on digestion but also your immune system response. So generally speaking, people who are in some state of mental, chemical, or physical stress or distress don't heal as well uh, from injuries or from um, um, different types of infections, things of that nature. They also are not as protected as well. So we do start to see uh, a downregulation of the innate protective mechanisms and healing mechanisms that occur inside our body. Uh, And we've seen some pretty uh, interesting research over the years that talks about uh, different things like um, the cells, when you're in a state of stress, don't absorb or take up the nutrients as effectively or efficiently. So even if you are getting the nutrients into your body, the cells at the cellular level aren't pulling in the minerals like they should. And that's going to affect things like the, uh, the actual pH inside the cell. And a lot, of, a lot of people don't realize that our immune system, the pH affects our immune system quite a bit, the pH of our body. pH of the body uh, as far as uh, outside of the cell, but even more importantly, inside the cell. Inside the cell, when the pH changes because of the lack of minerals getting into the cell, we start to see a downregulation of our innate immune system response that protects our DNA that protects our, uh, us from virus and parasitic infections intracellularly. And we do see people with prolonged stress responses not do well when it comes to cancer survival rates uh, or even getting cancer. Uh, we have also seen studies, uh, I remember one years ago, uh, that measured free radical damage. And free radicals can really cause degenerative disease. And that's a completely other uh, whole full broadcast as far as um, podcasts, what damage free radicals do. But other than chemotherapeutic and um, uh, highly, uh, highly toxic environmental chemicals, stress was the number two producer of free radicals. And if you don't have, have enough antioxidants to, come, to bind to those free radicals, then, then we start to see degenerative damage. That can be outside the cell, it can be inside the cell, and that can affect anything from the heart, the brain, the joints. So stress is a major player with our with our uh, cells' ability to to heal and protect itself. Yeah, I always think of um, there was a study on vaccines, and regardless of what you think about vaccines, I think this is instructive. 
if the person slept well prior to getting a vaccine, the likelihood that their immune system responded positively, making antibodies and doing all that correctly. I don't remember the exact number, but it was a substantial, significant increase in the body's ability to mount a normal response. And just mm-hmm. it was like an hour or two different of poor sleep the night before completely negated any benefit from any vaccine. Yeah. That was a pre-COVID type of study back, I think, on flu vaccines. But and again, not to, not to say anything about vaccines, good or bad, but it just shows that the immune system is so highly in tune with, with sleep. Even if you're not feeling stressed, if you just don't sleep the night before, you're going to have immune compromise. Yeah, you're more prone to getting infections. And if you sleep deprive anyone, they're going to become very compromised shortly. Mm-hmm. Some people within days, some people within weeks. But sleep deprivation is one of the worst things that can happen for us when it comes to our ability to fight off infections, uh, fight inflammation, and the uh, and uh, heal from anything. So, sleep is one of the best things that you can do for stress, and so uh, just to combat it. So, other than sleep, what else have you seen that's been uh, effective? Sleep is my favorite one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think in looking at non-mental forms of stress. Going back to di- digestion, knowing about digestive inflammation, knowing about food intolerances, if you've got bacterial infections, insufficient absorption, those are things that can persist in people even if they don't have digestive symptoms. Yeah. You actually see that quite a bit. person comes in, they don't have any symptoms, but yet we test them and we do our normal workup, and that's, that's a main problem. It looks like they've got yeast or bacterial infection in their gut. Getting rid of that alone just because of the impact on the brain and from an inflammation perspective is huge. Yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the equivalent of sleep as it relates to digestive function. So the equivalent of sleep for the digestive system is called fasting. When you fast, you're giving your digestive organs a break. So they're literally allowed to take a break for the first time. So I want you to think about if... If you're working in, a, in an office environment that's inflammatory and the work never stops and it's like one thing after another, one thing after another, and you never get a break, then uh, it, it becomes very, very hard on your system, even if you're doing normal good work. So if you're eating right, and I will say food allergies, food sensitivities, um, food that's innately not natural and whole, that has chemicals in it, can all be a chemical stressor to our body. And so giving your digestive system a break by properly fasting, and there's some people who shouldn't fast, but the majority of people uh, can start to even start with intermittent fasting and having windows where you're not eating as much or going on more extended fasts. The amount of benefit you can get from that uh, is actually uh, quite staggering when it comes to your ability to heal from stress. And I've had people who eat some stuff, get a little inflamed, and then they can't manage the stress of their daily activities. But all of a sudden when they fast or they've reduced their intestinal inflammation, they can manage what's being thrown at them. Nothing changed in their daily routine. It was their, their ability and capabilities that, that improved. So fasting is actually a really good thing to learn how to do properly. I'm going to say it that way. Yeah. The idea of intermittent fasting, I think, is a good one. And there's actually another term called time-restricted feeding. Have you heard of that one? Yeah. It's basically the idea that everybody's, uh, most people have heard of circadian rhythm, right? Your body has a body clock that helps you sleep and wake up. But other organs other than your brain have circadian rhythms too, like the liver and, and some digestive organs. Once you eat food in the morning, your liver produces enzymes, but not 
indefinitely. They'll produce them more effectively for about, I think it's about 12 hours after that initial initial meal. And so if your initial meal is at 6 o'clock, if then you're eating late at night, your body and your digestive capacity now is lower just because of the time of day. Yeah, and that window gets less and less the older you get. So in the 30s, it's much more effective, and there's a bigger um, dose, if you will, in the beginning. That's why when you're maybe 20 years old, you can eat like an entire pizza and not at midnight and go to bed and feel fine in the morning. And if you're uh, 60 years old and you have a slice of pizza at noon and you're up with acid reflux, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we see um, as we age. That system becomes less um, efficient, is what I'm going to say. And part of that is the drop in stomach acid as yeah. we age, too. Yes. And we've talked about this in the past, so you can maybe check out some of our past podcasts. But again, when we have stress, you can develop ulcers. And the stress mechanism, when our vagus nerve stops firing uh, as like it should, I'm going to say it this way. There's a decrease in the management of our digestive system. So uh, we can actually see an increase in stomach acid or a decrease in stomach acid. There's usually a net decrease in stomach acid. And the timing of when that stomach acid is released is actually the big problem because the vagus nerve primes the pump for our, our cells in the stomach that are called parietal cells. And parietal cells will release stomach acid when they get stretched or they have the weight of the bolus, the food, the food bolus. And then the signal gets sent um, to release stomach acid. But the vagus nerve is what primes that pump. So if all of a sudden the signal, a little bit of stomach acid gets released, but not enough, then all of a sudden you're not digesting fully that food bolus. And that's those people who will go for a steak and all of a sudden realize that it just sits on them like a, like a brick. And people say, I just feel like I have a brick in my stomach. Well, they didn't fully digest that steak because they didn't have enough stomach acid at the time. But these same people will complain about acid reflux a couple hours later or later that evening because now a couple hours after that, that steak has actually moved a little bit through um, the stomach, you're releasing actual stomach acid. And uh, so the timing and the mechanism is off. And we do see the actual valve that opens up at the top of the, the stomach can get stuck open. And that when you go to bed at night, that acid will kind of flow out when it shouldn't be. And a couple of years back, I, I, I saw a study that talked about the number one indicator for uh, the strength of that valve. And it makes sense now, but it was melatonin. Your melatonin status, which is the deep sleep hormone, uh, indicated whether or not that uh, stomach valve was going to be strong or weakened. And so that makes sense to me. And then they found there was also another uh, variable, and that was exercise. People who exercised uh, more consistently tended to have stronger uh, stomach valves uh, as well. So so there's a, there's a dual mechanism there of when the stomach acid gets released. But historically, what happens when you go to a doctor and say, I have acid reflux at night, what do they put you on? An acid blocker. An acid blocker. Dr. Josh Lee answered the question in his head that time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and that's and that causes more problems. So the real problem is addressing the stress response and then getting a good uh, getting the timing down for the release of the stomach acid and strengthening that valve. The two best things you can do to strengthen the stomach valve is exercise consistently and improve your sleep or your deep sleep melatonin. Now guess what are the top three things that downregulate your melatonin? 
it'll literally take 5-hydroxytryptophan, or tryptophan, sorry, and convert it into um, uh, quinolytic acid. And there's three things that cause that. Number one, stress. We're talking about it. Mental stress. Number two, infection. And number three, inflammation. So those three things will will convert the tryptophan over to the quinolinic acid, which in excess is toxic to the brain, versus making it into melatonin. There's a few other things that can uh, in, impact the conversion from tryptophan to 5-hydroxytryptophan to serotonin to melatonin, like B6 deficiencies. And estrogen problems do. Estrogen problems can do that. So there, there's a, there are, and that's an example of potential chemical stress when we have uh, hormones that are out of balance, like estrogen. So other types of stress, too. So you mentioned, you mentioned gut already. We mentioned exercise a bit. Talked about sleep a fair amount and infections, too, I think. Infections, one thing that I see as a persistent, unappreciated source of infections is mouth infections, dental infections. Yeah. I think it's worth talking about that briefly because we just mentioned it even earlier today, and I've had a few patients recently where that is a very easy thing to overlook, moral health. And, you know, we, we all know to go to the dentist. I, some people don't like going to the dentist. But it's not just about, hey, going and getting your teeth routinely cleaned. There are a lot of things even that, that we can do from, on a daily basis to help oral health. Yes. Do you have any favorite things? Um, one of my favorite things, uh, other than brushing and flossing, that's a legitimately good thing when you do it properly, um, is oil pulling. I love oil pulling for for teeth. And so for people who don't know what that is, you, you can take a teaspoon of uh, coconut oil and then you swish it around in your mouth for five, ten minutes if you can make it that long. And then um, uh, you spit it out. Now don't spit it down the drain because it will solidify again and then clog the drain. So you you spit it into a jar and then uh, put it in the backyard somewhere bury it or something like that. <laughs> um, but it, it's going to be uh, basically bacteria from, from the mouth. And, uh, and it, there's a, a purification process that does occur, uh, does occur with that. So there's also some probiotics that are good for oral uh, probiotics that you can take. Uh, but those generally I, I love uh, as far as dental hygiene. The other thing that is vastly underrated is exercising to the point of sweating or doing a sauna or steam room, getting your face to actually sweat. Uh, there is so much of a cleansing process that occurs with that because we want to move the lymph system. We want to improve the blood flow to the actual head, neck, and jaw area. And so uh, that helps a lot. Even simple things like singing, whether it's in the shower or at church or wherever you are, Singing increases blood flow to the area, strengthens the nerves that uh, help with the gag re response, help with digestion, and oral health. Exercise is another you know, big reason to, another, I should say this way, another big reason to exercise is lung movement. Right? Yes. And an easy one that I have people do sometimes is trampoline or, yeah. or rebounder, I think sometimes it's called. Yeah. And it's common for if a person is not used to that, when they start for them to feel a little bit lousy for a bit. Yes. And that's because they've got so much junk trapped up in their lymph that they, and they're not doing anything to get rid of it. There's nothing to pump your lymph. There's no heart to pump your lymph. It's your diaphragm. If you're doing, if you're breathing correctly, which is a whole other topic. Yes. And then exercise. And so the lymph backup and stagnation just generally, which a lot of people have, we, we look at that on our body composition testing, our BIA testing. 
That is so common to see that built up. That alone is a stressor, and getting rid of that can be a huge benefit from the oral health perspective and sleep yeah. and digestion and a whole bunch of things. Yeah, lymph is one of the main consequences of stress. And what is it that people crave? I like playing this game all the time. What, what do people crave when they have stress? Chocolate. Chocolate. The women yeah, generally salt, salt crave I think we salt and sugar. Salt and sugar. Yeah. sugar. Yeah. I'm going to write this time. I think yeah. I said something weird last time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the sugar is what we crave. Uh, and sugar is notorious for congesting the lymph system. So just to go through this again, uh, as far as the lymphatic system, what it means, it, it literally is Greek for fast-flowing river or waters. And so as we have stress and we crave the sugar... The, the amount of sugar that doesn't get put away or stored either in our liver or used by our cells then is floating around in the vascular system. Now, if it attaches to hemoglobin, it becomes what's called hemoglobin A1C. If it enters into our lymph, it attaches to the cells in our lymph. Well, think about what that would look like. That's like dumping an entire dump truck of sugar into a small river and having it turn more into like a lava stream. It gets thick. It gets gooey. So sugar not only will have, have its diabetic consequences and, and problems that way, it will start to clog and congest the lymph system. It becomes more sticky. A lot of times we'll refer people for lymphatic massage and to help break up those adhesions uh, or the stickiness of the lymph, if you will, to get it moving again. In order to get your lymph moving, you have to remove the sugar, increase your water, and get the lymph flowing. Now, exercise can do that, but sometimes exercise is painful for people because of the lymph. And so one of the things, especially if you have someone at home that you can work with, doing lymph massage uh, on each other and then getting it professionally done is something that is just so therapeutic. And that includes uh, the face. You can do light touch around the face and start to uh, push the lymph out of the, the different muscles and the different areas of the head, neck, jaw, and then in the body as well. Yeah. Dry brushing is a very similar concept mm -hmm. too. Yep. Yeah. Also very good uh, for uh, the, the stress response. So to help manage your stress at home, you might be surprised um, just what a, uh, a couple's lymph massage with each other once or twice a week can do. It's just the effectiveness is, is fantastic. Yeah. I think we should talk next about heart rate variability pertaining to stress. I like that because there are ways to measure, measure this, and there are also ways to retrain this. And thinking about ways to combat stress, heart rate variability retraining is a good way to train your body to, to adapt to stress appropriately. So well, heart rate you, variability. Yeah, yeah, tell us yeah, what that means, yeah. heart rate variability. Yeah, exactly. So when your heart beats, let's say that you're not doing anything, you're sitting there you know, at your desk doing whatever, your heart Every beat has a length of time between the beats. That length of time should not be the same between every single beat. It should vary. That variability is a measure of, of stress response and health towards stress response. If there's no variability in there, especially with different activities like deep breathing or certain types of exercise or even during sleep, that low variability is a measure of stress intolerance in a way. And so there are measurements, for instance, we sometimes use what's called an aura ring. Uh, we get this through our, our sleep apnea tests called the watch pad. We get heart rate variability measurements. And for people that, even if they're sleeping okay, if their heart rate variability is too low, that alone is a big indicator that they're in a stressed state. Yeah. And the vagus nerve you're talking about, uh, that same area of the brain, uh, helps to regulate that to a certain degree uh, as well. So there, there's this net 
feedback system where we start to see compromise with your digestive system, compromise with how your heart is regulated, and then the other vital organs, the same type of thing. So that I do really like having heart rate variability testing because that gives us uh, a sense of how you're doing. And, and some people have awareness on whether or not they're in a stress state, and some people don't. And, and it may not be mental stress. Again, I've seen heart rate variability issues with um, diet again. And, uh, for example, the Oura Ring will uh, check and find differences with your heart rate variability and say, did you eat late last night? That's exactly I was just going to say that. I, wore, I don't have an Oura Ring, but I used one of our clinic ones for yeah. a couple months just to try it. One of my main takeaways was that if I ate past 8 o'clock, I think, yeah. even if I felt fine, my sleep quality and my heart rate variability dropped. Mine was 7 p.m. 7 p.m.? Yeah. So you're younger than yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, But as far as heart rate variability goes, there are ways other than cleaning up diets to improve that. And one of my favorites, there's some, I don't remember the name of the app, maybe we can find this, but it's a breathing retraining type of oh, thing. Yeah. And if you can, it's almost like meditation. Or like yeah. prayer. There's a lot of things that can yeah. go into that category. But doing those types of things where you're deliberately retraining breathing in particular, that can have a big impact on heart rate variability and stress response. And then that becomes a tool, too, when you are stressed to help calm down your body. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, yeah, I'm a huge fan of a lot of the breathing apps. And I've mentioned in the past, too, Wim Hof breathing is a slightly more aggressive approach that you can, yeah. you can, you can move <laughs> into. Um, but... Uh, to, to get some sense of how your um, heart rate variability is, is doing and then to actually apply different things like breathing, meditation, and prayer, it's actually quite fascinating to, to look at the differences. And, and uh, I know Dr. Josh and I are very similar in this way where we like to get toys like the Aura Ring or some of our sleep study equipment and then play with it and, uh, and start to investigate some of the things with our patients and ourselves that work for us and don't work for us. Because I have patients that uh, if they sit down to um, try and meditate or, or pray, they, they literally get stressed out from that. And those are more my uh, focused, uh, lack of focus, ADD type patients in general, uh, or people that are in such a um, high state of fire flight that they have to physically burn it off first. So I had one patient in particular, where I had to make him do uh, push-ups and sit-ups before he started relaxing. <laughs> Did it work? It worked, yeah. yeah. And he, it would pull, he was having full-blown panic attacks, and it would pull him out of a panic attack, and he learned to regulate. So when he could feel that coming on, he would drop down wherever he was, do five push-ups, and, and then start doing some breathing, and uh, it was enough to, to uh, mitigate the situation, and he didn't have a full-blown panic attack. So with other solutions to combat stress, we talked about sleep. What other things do you you advocate for taking melatonin? Are there certain things that you like to do to improve people's sleep? So one of the leading sleep experts in the country um, comes from Stanford. And he, he wrote a great book. Uh, and he, he basically went through a lot of the science. It, it's, a, it's a kind of a heavy read, but it, it's a good one. Uh, forgive me, I can't remember the name of the book right now. but um, he, his conclusion was that sleep medication had more of a detrimental impact long-term than anything else. Now, when it comes to supplements, I'm going to say it this way. Supplements are meant to supplement a healthy diet and lifestyle. 
So sleep supplements may work temporarily, but you've got to find the root cause issue that's driving that. For example, if you need melatonin, there's a reason why you're not making melatonin. And again, it's going to be stress, inflammation, or infection. Some people with chronic infection, chronic illness, uh, we just don't really have a choice until we can get them to a certain level. Some people just have careers uh, or responsibilities where they they just don't have the, the, the ability to to take a break from it. They're, they've just got high-level responsibilities. I hear chiropractic is that way. Yes. <laughs> And uh, so that that's a big part of it. And um, for me, uh, well, speaking of chiropractic, one of my favorite, you know this, one, my favorite tool to get people sleeping is, a, is what's called a seated occiput lift adjustment. And uh, a lot of times the airway uh, for people becomes weaker. And there's a particular adjustment in chiropractic, which is very challenging. We refer out to a lot of different uh, chiropractors around the country and uh, to, to get the duplication of that adjustment has been challenging, but when it's done effectively, it improves their sleep status drastically. And so I'm going to just take 30 seconds to explain that particular one because uh, it's, it's so important. When you're, f- uh, I want you guys to visualize this right now. Uh, visualize flexing your bicep muscle. In order to flex that bicep muscle, the nerves have to send a signal to contract the bicep, but they also have to send a signal to relax the tricep in order to have that function occur. Now, if you go through uh, life and you have a stress response in any way, shape, or form, a lot of times it's the muscles at the back of the neck that get tight at some point. That occurs with digestive referrals, digestive reflexes, and mental stress. It may start with the traps and, and move on upward, up there, but the suboccipital muscles become very tight. There is a point during sleep where our whole body goes paralyzed, and it's supposed to happen, And all the muscles are supposed to be shut down except for the muscles of the airway. They're meant to stay open so that you can keep oxygen flowing to the brain. Now, if you have spasmed muscles in the back of the neck that don't shut down, there's a reciprocal inhibition scenario where it will send signals um, to the muscles on the front, the anterior side of the neck, and we end up seeing this collapsing of the airway. It's called upper airway resistance syndrome. And so we start to see weakness in those airway muscles and you temporarily don't get oxygen to the brain. Now, your pulse ox generally in a sleep study won't change. So it gets missed a lot in sleep studies because what happens is your brain sends a stress response to the body, adrenaline or cortisol uh, type scenario, and you get pulled out of that deep sleep state. So it tends to get missed with the uh, sleep studies. And what I've seen is that uh, these people tend to have more arousals but no change in their oxygen. They also tend to be um, not necessarily overweight, like with sleep apnea, you can reduce weight and a lot of times things improve. Uh, You can have thin people have this scenario because of stress, especially high anxiety people. We start to see it a lot. And pretty much, I'm going to say this bold statement, but 100% of my fibromyalgia patients have had this sleeping disorder. I actually can't recall one who did not. So it's very, very common. and. Sometimes you can you can put in dental devices and, and wear splints uh, to help correct it, but I found if the patient can tolerate a seated occiput adjustment, that it is by far the best treatment for that. Um, sometimes you can do it when it takes longer by changing diet and getting the muscles to relax, but that that tension at the back of the head is so key 
for actually getting people into that deep sleep state. How do you feel about CPAP devices in that situation? Well, I, I think whoever invented CPAP is brilliant because, uh, uh, number one, without CPAP, we would see a tremendous spike with cardiovascular disease because the damage to the heart and cardiovascular system is, is just extensive. And so uh, CPAP basically is forced air to keep the airway open. So the muscles are collapsing. So it's not really fixing the root cause problem, um, it's, but it's forcing oxygen there. So it's, it's like an expensive Band-Aid. Um, but the problem with CPAP is we only have 50% compliance historically with the people because of the actual tubes and everything else. So I think it's a, it's a great um, device for people to get them out of trouble right away. And it's more like emergency medicine for me, uh, but you should always be looking at uh, fixing the root cause problem because eventually uh, uh, there's less and less compliance and, and there's a lot of other problems that can come with it because I, I can't tell you how many fungal infections I'm treating nasally from, from CPAP because of not cleaning the machine properly and, and other things that, uh, that can set things off. So I think there's better answers out there. Um, but uh, I'm not against CPAP. No, sure. I, I view it the same way. If a person comes in and they don't have the diet and lifestyle set and they've got terrible apnea and high blood pressure and cardiovascular risk, it's probably a good thing to get started on that because it's going to keep you out of danger. Yeah. There's a huge reduction in, in blood pressure alone just because of sleep apnea. We always look for sleep apnea and the upper air, airway resistance problem in people who come in with cardiovascular disease. And I'm going to encourage the guys out there in particular to to get assessed for sleep apnea or, ease, or at least um, record yourself sleeping at nighttime. Yeah. You might be a little shocked by this. And just see see what you see. Um, see if you notice any episodes of you like stopping breathing, holding your breath type scenario. A lot of times uh, spouses will catch... Uh, the other one when it comes to the actual uh, sleep apnea. But just getting assessed for sleep apnea, uh, upper airway resistance syndrome, when we do our cardiometabolic programs here, it's one of the first things we do is we assess their cardiovascular system um, with our endopat machine and our, and our exam and our lab work, and we assess their sleep system. And it's rare to find the sleep is okay with someone with cardiovascular scenarios. It's nice now because we have the device called the watch pad where you can do that sleep study at home. Yeah. It doesn't catch everything that you would if you did an in-office sleep study, but from a convenience perspective and looking just for apnea, it's a good screening device because it's something that you wear on your wrist. you got a couple of things. It's not crazy versus going into the office. A lot of people won't do sleep tests because they don't want to go get hooked up to, yeah. you know, 20 electrodes and sleep in a weird bed where this is a good option then. As at least a way to screen for issues. Yeah, and some of the, the downfall of going in to getting the sleep study done is offset by the fact that you're actually getting information of how you sleep in your own bed. Yeah. So there, there's a pretty good uh, trade-off there, I think, to allow us to get the information we need. And it's a benchmark so that we can see if we're going to treat things more naturally and change diet lifestyle and start to affect the airway Let's see if the sleep study changes. It's it's a marker that you yeah. can uh, actually uh, assess and and look for look for chair changes. It's easy to retest that. Too. Very yeah. All right. So any other things that you have as go tos for combating stress? Uh, we talked about a lot of things you can implement. I am going to say also uh, we talked about uh, deep breathing meditation. 
for a lot of the moms out there and even and even a lot of the dads, uh, putting yourself in a timeout instead of your kids is a good idea. <laughs> I'm just going to talk about that a little bit. Um, whether it is a warm bath, whether it is a walk um, with uh, um, music playing or just your own thoughts, uh, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you to get that into your routine. We need a break. And I'm just going to say this, looking at your cell phone, watching the uh, feed, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, uh, Telegram, whatever the, the feed is, it, news channels, that's not a break. Sitting down and looking at that stuff is actually more stress. Because every time you look at something that you agree with or don't agree with, it's going to release a chemical or a reaction in your brain. And you're teaching your brain to become more and more resistant uh, or hardwired in a not in a negative way. I'm you're addicted say. to the stress. You're right? addicted to stress because you're going to get this little drip of dopamine on your amygdala, and then you've got to hit that next that next one and that next one. It's the same thing with the gaming and the the, the kids that are excessively gaming. I shouldn't say kids because we're seeing full blown adults right now, and it's very very common. Um, or to the extent of even having a psychological break from reality. Uh, when it comes to the gaming part of it, that's a whole other stress uh, stress scenario. So, but I will say this: to help with that, you have to take a break from technology. Whether it's gaming, just like the digestive system and fasting, you, we need to see fasting from technology to to help and just just see how you feel. Uh, coming in today, actually on the radio, I heard um, uh, the station I was listening to talking about uh, a mom who said that uh, to her 12-year-old that she would give uh, give him a certain amount of money if he stayed off social media until he was 18. And so uh, $1,800 is what he got once he turned 18 and he stayed off social media uh, from 12 to 18. She said, you know, $1,800 is a lot of money to a 12-year-old, not as much to an 18-year-old. <laughs> but uh, it... it that he was stuck with it for that st- he stuck for, he did it six years. Uh-huh. I mean, he got his eighteen hundred dollars too. It's good for him. My daughter's not that old yet, but I have a feeling I'd have to renegotiate that price as she goes. <laughs> oh man, inflation. Yeah, I might get some buffalo milk. <laughs> buffalo milk. Yeah. Don't um, yeah, don't ask. That's a that was an weird inside joke, joke from one of our meetings. You know. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, inside jokes were great for radio and podcasts. <laughs> Everybody's going to ask us about Buffalo Milk. Yeah, I know. We don't sell it. It's not anything. Don't don't ask us for it. We don't have it on the shelf. <laughs> Although I think we did look into Camel Milk once. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. We don't have that either, though. No. We have a recipe, though. So we'll... Uh... For Camel Milk? <laughs> no, for, for, for Nut Milks. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> camel. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> All right, so uh, this actually proves the next point. My next, uh, the next point: laughter is one of the best things you can do for stress. Joy, joy, joy. And so, one of our core values here, we've talked about some of our, our four pillars and our, our core values at Synapse. One of them was uh, excellence uh, without, without ego, <laughs> and the other one, I got it right there. I got to write it on the wall so you can just read it. And the other one is is fun. And I will say that's something uh, that we've focused on here. And Marquis coming in, um, we talked about it early on. It was part of the process with that. And although not everyone has a good sense of humor, I'm going to say, <laughs> they try, which makes it even funnier. 
But it's important to create an environment where you live and and where you work, if it's possible, where you get to laugh, where you get to have experiences of joy. It doesn't necessarily have to be laughter, but you'll be shocked at how many people come in uh, to the, the clinic and just say, after we're in the room, and they're coming in with pain, and they're really not doing well, but uh, I hear laughter coming from all of our offices. Uh, well, not all the offices. Some of them, some people aren't as funny as I <laughs> But most of the offices. And patients will say, I can't remember the last time I laughed. And when I hear that, that's a red flag for me. That is, that is I'm glad they had that experience, but think about that for a second. You should be laughing multiple times a day, daily, regardless of the situation. And that's why even in the, in the times we're in right now where we'll sit, we had a pretty serious discussion before coming out of this podcast uh, based on some of the things going on in the world, and yet we're laughing. And both are allowed to happen because laughter is a part of healing. If you don't know how to laugh or if you haven't been in a relationship where neither one of you are funny, then find something that does bring you joy and laughter and 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 watch it and experience it one of the other big things is surrounding people surrounding yourself with people that you love and care about yeah mm-hmm. i had a pretty negative extreme example of this with a patient recently where she was for i think justifiable reasons very sequestered because of covid and hadn't been around family and this was recent so it's been it's yeah. been a good year and a half plus where she hasn't been around family and she was depressed, and she didn't tell me this at first, but she kind of broke down then during one of our visits and said, I just had to go, and it was the first time I saw my family. It was the first time I'd gotten a hug from my family in yeah. over a year. And I was like, that's, that's not okay. Yeah. And I understand people being fearful of COVID, which I think you know, that's a, a, our own com- a different conversation. We've had those conversations on this podcast. But there has got to be a balance and a, a priority check to say, is it really worth staying away from family for a year yeah i think think that i think not no i agree with you and i think that is going to come out as a learning experience because the the one thing that's different about what we're going through right now compared to um the the flu epidemic the spanish flu epidemic and and world war ii is social media is the is the amount of information and communication worldwide between people uh, between doctors and so we have just a whole bunch of information to process and get through. And, and many doctors have come out and talked about uh, the negative impacts of shutdowns and, and the trade-off. And we'll, we will be able to discern through that information much later on. And um, people forget how uh, impactful it is when you don't have touch, when you don't have community. When you have a baby and you feed that baby, but you don't touch that baby, they have failure to thrive. They don't make it. And so, unfortunately, we know this from uh, actual studies in the past uh, um, on, on groups of kids that were put in closets. Uh, they were fed, but they did not survive because they didn't have touch or sensory experiences, visual and auditory uh, experiences. So we are much, much more complex, and we require different things. And this was... Uh, um, one of the other things I was just going to say, there are levels to, to touch. And so, again, I'm going to say it this way. Uh, touch is very, very important for just the human dynamic to take away stress. And I've even, I had a patient, same thing. She hadn't uh, seen family, hadn't experienced anything. Her adjustments that she was coming in for were her only 
touch she was receiving in the year and a half. And then she all of a sudden just started hyperventilating. And uh, so I went up, I just gave her a hug and she started bawling. And she, and she said, that's what I needed. She goes, I just, she felt so different. She just felt so alone and so desperate. She was not married. She was not, uh, she's in her sixties and she just was, um, she didn't, she, she couldn't process information. And it was something that, uh, that, instantly was a stress reliever for her in that moment and it was it was the compassion of it it was the actual physical touch part of it as well uh, but we need that so if you're in a in a relationship and i'm going to say it this way not everyone has a good relationship in fact many people have the exact opposite where they don't have support in the relationship and during this time unfortunately we also see people who are sequestered and isolated who have addiction issues get worse and then be, they become worse to their spouse and significant others. So it's important for you to find, if, you have, if that's one of your stressors, find community, find people that can help lift you up in that way. And then the last thing I'm going to talk about um, for, for our spouses is uh, when it comes to touch, we talked about massage already, but also uh, just being intimate with your spouse is a stress reliever. And so, again, that could be a whole other show, but there is a lot of, uh, benefit that comes from that. And, and truthfully, the fight or flight versus rest and digest conversation we had about our autonomic nervous system, there's actually one other part to that rest and digest. It's called rest, digest, and sex. So basically, as we're in fight or flight, our, the systems that become compromised are our ability to sleep, digest, and become intimate with our significant other. So it is one of those scenarios where that part of the nervous system starts to become compromised. And so uh, we see a, we see a lot of that, and so one of the things that will come out of all this isolation in the last couple of years is heightened awareness of depression and other factors, but also probably more babies. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anything else uh, as far as solutions uh, from your perspective that off the top of your head? Well, I think those last ones really encompassed a lot of what I was thinking. So I don't have anything else off the top of my head. Just go have fun, have a laugh. Yeah. Like somebody you love. Yes. All very good for, for the healing process. So uh, we thank you again for listening and for those that are uh, sharing the podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, if you have topics, uh, please send them in. Where do they send them? So, <laughs> good, you're learning. <laughs> At our website, there's a... On the, on the homepage, there's the, the navigation bar. You've got the, uh, there's a media section. And under that, there's podcasts. You can see all the podcasts like this there. On the bottom, there is a little form you can fill out and you can um, enter in something you'd like us to talk about. We've had a lot of people fill that out. We've covered some of those topics and that's stuff that we filter in kind of as, we, as we need to. That's the location. Again, our website, officialsynapse.com. Under the media section, podcasts, that's where you'd find it. Thanks, and uh, everyone, take care, have a good laugh, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Synapse Nips podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast. To learn more, check out our website at www.officialsynapse.com. Until next time, this has been Synapse Nips podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should under no circumstances be considered medical advice or a substitute for medical care. Any information given in this podcast is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease and is at the user's own risk.
please first consult a licensed healthcare professional.